Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. The February sitting is light on cases, but big on consequences. And kicking off the sitting is a pair of cases that will likely decide the future of the electronic town square, that is social media. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the justices will hear Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tamne, both of which are born out of ISIS terror attacks abroad. In Gonzalez, the family of an American student says Google should be held liable for the terror group's 2015 attack at a Paris bistro. And in Tamne, the family of a Jordanian citizen killed in a 2017 nightclub attack in Istanbul is suing Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Greg, there's a lot of talk about the implications of this case, particularly that it could lead to one of two extremes. Either there's a free-for-all hellscape where hate speech proliferates even more than it does now, or there's a sort of free speech free zone uh, which, where content is severely restricted. And a lot of that depends on what's known as Section 230. So let's start with that. Can you tell us what is it? How did it come about? And uh, what was it meant to do? Sure. So Section 230 is a provision that was enacted in 1996. It was part of the Communications Decency Act, which was part of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. It was basically a reaction to a state court decision. And I'll, I'll try to explain that state court decision. There, there, there's a case against a service that uh, used to exist called Prodigy, uh, it was a, had an online bulletin board, and this case involved a defamation suit. And what the court said in that Prodigy case, it was a New York State court, said Prodigy is the publisher of uh, this content on there. And under the common law, a publisher can be held strictly liable if, if something is defamatory. And so Section 230 essentially overturned that decision. And, and what it says is that an online company is not a publisher or not going to be treated as a publisher for third-party content, meaning they're not going to be automatically liable the way a traditional publisher would be. And over the years, this provision, courts have generally construed it very broadly. And the, mm -hmm. the, uh, it, it served as basically a shield for internet companies from lawsuits over third-party content. As, as we'll get into, uh, companies and advocates of Section 230 say it's been really, really vital for the growth of the internet um, and that we wouldn't be where we are today without it. Which is either a good thing or a bad thing, I guess. Um, no judgments here. <laughs> so a couple of things to say about Section 230 is that um, people might, uh, this might ring a bell for our listeners because it's come under a lot of scrutiny from both the left and the right. So on the right, we hear from Trump and other conservatives that Section 230 um, serves as a mechanism to censor speech on the right. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, progressives say it allows too much hate speech and allows things like bullying. And so we've seen a lot of reaction from Congress. I think there have been about two dozen bills introduced in Congress to try to uh, modify the section in various ways. And then we also see state laws, particularly ones out of Florida and Texas, which could be added to the court's docket soon. All that is to say that I wonder if whatever the Supreme Court does here is actually going to be the last word and is really going to have all these big implications or if there's some work for legislatures to do here. 
there certainly will be some work for legislatures, no matter which way the court decides this case, because this case is about a statute. And that means that Congress, if, if it doesn't like what the court did, can say, no, we want the statute to mean something else. Now that, of course, you know, presupposes that Congress could actually agree on something, which which it's not been able to do. Um, the the you mentioned the Texas and Florida cases, and, mm-hmm. and, and one thing that's you know, sort of worth keeping in mind is those are First Amendment cases. Those are about whether the government can uh, restrict the ability of these social media companies to moderate content, and so they're analytically distinct, but very much overlapping in terms uh-huh. of uh, you know the big picture policy questions. Yeah, um, that's actually a great segue. You know, there are a lot of moving parts, and I just wonder if we should first focus on the Gonzalez case and talk about what it is that the Gonzalez plaintiffs are arguing. This is the case against Google. Um, why do they say that Google should be liable for ISIS videos on YouTube? Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is over a terrorist incident, and the <clears throat> there's been a lot of uh, process in this case, but, but for purposes of the Supreme Court case, what the allegation is is that YouTube, which is owned by Google, aided and abetted the Islamic State by promoting its videos. The underlying cause of action is something called the Anti-Terrorism Act, which which gives some people uh, the right to sue over terrorist activities. And, and so the question in the Google case is whether Section 230 provides a shield to that action under the, the Anti-Terrorism Act. And, and the family is basically saying YouTube, through its algorithms, recommended Islamic State videos. And so the way this works, we're all familiar with this on social media, but the way it worked at the time was if you were watching uh, a certain type of videos on YouTube, say, uh, Kimberly, I'm sure you love puppy videos. If you're watching puppy videos, uh, there would be a sidebar there. So when you're done watching that Golden Retriever video, you can you can check out the Black Lab video right next to it. And uh, the family says that is not something a traditional publisher would do. That's actually recommending content, much like a book reviewer would recommend you you read a book. Right. And so um, there are a lot of uh, pretty powerful friends on Google's side. Um, One thing that's interesting to me about this case, Greg, though, is that this is at heart a statutory case, but a lot of the arguments seem to be sort of policy based, based on the potential ramifications that, you know, the Supreme Court system might have. So what what is it that Google and its friends are arguing? So one of the big potential distinctions in this case is whether these algorithms on YouTube are or are not like a search engine. And so the policy questions come into, you know, if the court says, yeah, you can sue over these so-called recommendations, does that mean you can sue over the results you get from a search engine? The the family is saying, no, they're analytically, analytically distinct because we're uh, when, when you have a search engine, you're actively as a user typing in puppy videos or whatever you're you're typing in. Google and its allies, and it's got a lot of companies on its side, say you can't distinguish these things. With a search engine, just like with the algorithm on on YouTube, we're making decisions behind the scenes. So. If you type in, say, Reagan, tear down wall, this is an example from Google's brief, the search engine is going to figure you probably mean is you want to see Ronald Reagan's speech at the Brandenburg Gate in 1987, because that's what most people uh, would want. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. They think you're probably not going to want to see the content about the uh, improvements at Reagan National Airport (laughs) uh, in Washington, although you and I may be looking for that sort of stuff. (laughs) 
their experience begins with us, the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. And so kind of the, you know, a key question here is, can you prevent this case from putting all manner of internet content, uh, the, the providers at risk of being sued over search engines, over, you know, professional networks, over uh, platforms that, that um, you know, let the de- developers uh, share code. Um, on the other side, the policy arguments mm-hmm. include this proliferation, this online sewer that you talked about of the proliferation of hate speech and... and uh, the technical the- term is hellscape. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, it's it's much worse than a sewer. It's a hellscape. Um, but but there are some companies, not companies, but entities that have filed briefs either neutral or on the Gonzalez family side that basically saying um, there's this rise of social media encouraging uh, hate speech, uh, which leads to gun violence and teenage suicide. And, and so kind of urging the court to be careful about um, going too far in reinforcing this shield and, and preventing any sorts of uh, accountability for for uh, encouraging those bad things. I don't know if, if this is the way that you see it too, but it, it seems to me that a lot of the confusion here about what should count and what shouldn't count, what should be protected, what shouldn't be protected, comes from the fact that the statute wasn't very clear on that and courts have sort of just taken a pretty broad um, understanding of it without really wrestling with with the text of the of section two thirty. Yeah, and Google makes a point that this is really about twenty six words in the statute, <laughs> and um, you know there are twenty six words that were written uh, before we knew what Twitter was or or YouTube or anything like that. It was written at a time where online bulletin boards were were cutting edge. I mean, a problem we have is we have this blunt, blunt instrument of this this language that the court is going to have to grapple with, and in some ways decide: Are we going to, you know, be the ones forevermore trying to decide, uh, you know, whether some newfangled way of displaying content online makes somebody a publisher or not? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think there's so many aspects of this case that are fascinating to me, including the, um, you know, degree of separation between this case and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Gentlemen, welcome to Stratton Oakmont. But one of the interesting things is that these cases were considered, along with another case, together uh, in the Ninth Circuit, but they are separated out in the Supreme Court. And I wonder if you can tell me what I guess first, what's at issue in the Twitter case? And then maybe we can get into how they interact because I I sort of think I know, but I might not know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to hear your thoughts because I, I think I know, but I'm not <laughs> totally sure I know. Let, let me just describe quickly the basics of the Twitter case, which is that is a case, remember I said the, the underlying uh, claim here has to do with the Anti-Terrorism Act. And that case mm-hmm. is about the Anti-Terrorism Act. Forgetting Section 230 for a second, a second, can you sue over uh, this alleged assistance that social media companies provided to the Islamic State? And in this case, I, I'm going to say Twitter, but it's basically all the social media companies, it's Twitter and Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, they are saying, um, so, so, so basically the claim is um, that they didn't that the social media companies didn't do enough to take down terrorist content. So it's mm-hmm. slightly different than, than in the other case. But um, Twitter and allies are saying this claim is not 
specifically enough connected to the actual terrorist attack. You were sort of saying we provided this kind of broad support by not moving quickly enough to take things down, but there's no allegation here that there's a line between, you know, this this a video that we didn't take down or this tweet or whatever, um, and and the attack. There's also a question of whether uh, the law requires that you provide, you knowingly provide substantial mm-hmm. assistance. And so there's also a question of what does that mean? Is it um, the family says, hey, there were a lot of specific warnings, including from some you know, top government officials, and you should have, been, should have heeded those. So that's kind of what the, the backdrop of the case is about. In terms of your question of <laughs> how they intersect, so the way I'm sort of thinking of it is the Twitter case could Let's be get in your brain. Off, could be an <laughs> off ramp. Oh, that's a scary place. Could be an off ramp for the court mm-hmm. if it decides these Section 230 issues are. Uh, it doesn't want to deal with them. Google says in its brief that if the court over if the court reverses in the Twitter case, in other words, says there's no claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act, then you don't, basically these two cases are the same and therefore you don't even need to decide the Section 230 case, we win. It's also the case, I think, that um, if the court decides the Section 230 case in Google's favor, it doesn't have to decide the Twitter case because I think, this at least Google right. says this in, in its briefs, that everybody agrees that if Section 230 applies to the Google case, it applies to the Twitter case too. So one way of looking at it, the way I'm looking at it, I'd be interested to hear if you're thinking of it differently, is that the social media companies have two different ways to win this mm-hmm. particular dispute. They just have to win one of the two cases and and then maybe the court doesn't have to decide the other case. Yeah, that's that's the way that it's also been living in my head. I, I do wonder if it's true, um, and I don't know the answer to this, is it true that the cases sort of resolve each other, or is there some distinction to be made between the activity of at issue in Google where you're recommending certain content versus sort of what's alleged in the Twitter case that you're not taking down content fast enough? Um, I haven't seen a lot of sort of discussion about how those two might be different, and maybe that's something that they'll argue in the lower courts, and that's, you know, we'll see what the Supreme Court says on these kind of bigger issues, but that that is a sort of a big question in my brain. Yeah, I agree with that, and I don't think I can shed a lot of light on it. That, that is sort of uh, a little thing that that, uh, uh, especially as you articulate it, is sort of nagging at me that I that I haven't seen a whole lot uh, suggesting that there either are or are not distinctions between those two types of alleged behavior. You know, one thing that we haven't mentioned that is probably worth mentioning is that uh, this is a case where there wasn't a clear circuit mm-hmm. split down below. The court didn't have to take the Section 230 case. There were some dueling opinions, and in particular, there was an opinion by the late Judge Katzman in the Second Circuit in a different case that basically said Section 230 should not be this all-encompassing shield. But the Supreme Court took this case uh, without necessarily having to take it. Uh, it, it you know, some justices, in particular Justice Thomas, have expressed some interest in mm-hmm. scaling back the level of, of Section 230's protection. Um, but I am interested in your thoughts on, like, does it, do you think the Supreme Court is going to be eager to wade into all these Section 230 issues, especially if it thinks it really may not have to? Well, I think one of the things that, um, as I mentioned before, 
one of the things that's really curious about Section 230 to me is that, you know, we live in a very textualist court right now where a majority of the justices, maybe even all of them, some would say, uh, you know, really look closely at the text of the statute. This, the way that the lower courts have interpreted Section 230 does not seem to follow in that line. And so I think it's attractive for the justices to take this case and bring it more in line with maybe what the statute um, says. Uh, but I wonder if now that they've seen all the uh, amicus support and they've gotten a sense of the sort of extremes that I explained at the beginning and the implications for it, if they'll be a little more hesitant to step in. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. To me, this case doesn't necessarily come out one ideological way or even political way one way or the other. Um, so it's hard for me to guess the way that the justices are going to be are going to be thinking about it. Um, what about what about you? I mean, I think it's a little too easy to say they took this case to make it narrow without sort of thinking about the implications that have been brought to to the forefront. Yeah, that that I think what you said is very apt uh, and, and and probably reflects some of my thinking as well. I guess the one other kind of interesting aspect, a uh, thing to keep in the back of our minds, is that you mentioned the Texas and Florida cases, mm -hmm. um, and basically those laws, those laws are very clearly ideological laws. They are mm -hmm. uh, Republicans saying these liberal tech companies are are stifling conservative voices, and um, you know, there's some real tension in the lower courts. Seems like the Supreme Court probably going to have to take those cases. But what it did in those cases was it asked for the Solicitor General to weigh in instead of taking them up for this term, which it could have done. And Oh, good. Uh, Let's add more to this term. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> There's not enough it, on the on the docket. Yeah. I, I suspect that reflects kind of a reluctance to, to a recognition that these are complicated issues mm -hmm. um, and the implications are very complicated. And We've already bitten off plenty for this term. Let's deal with one one issue at a time, and we'll we'll deal with that one next term. Let's deal with like twenty issues at a time, and we'll deal with that one that one later. Okay. So, Greg, finally, uh, we've been talking about the huge implications of this case and what uh, it might do to the future of the internet. And I don't know about you, but I am very assured that we're in great hands with this bunch of nine deciding this this they're very tech savvy bunch of people um actually no they're not and you wrote about this in a story this week about how the justices sort of recognize that maybe they're not the um you know technological wonders that we hope would be deciding these issues and so how they sort of uh, prepare for these kinds of cases include including going on killing sprees so uh <laughs> What what did you find out? But only only one of them enjoyed the killing spree. Um, <laughs> okay. No, yeah. Oh, so, so what <laughs> what the story was was just kind of going back in time and and finding some nuggets and I actually interviewed Justice Justice Breyer for it as well about how the justices learn about the tech this sort of technology that they're probably not aware of and you know, there's a great story that Justice Kagan has told. Uh, about before the court decided a case involving violent video games uh, a little more than a decade ago, she and Justice Breyer decided to play some vi violent video games. And uh, I, my understanding is the game was Grand Theft Auto. And she went down to his chambers and they played. And, and in her words, Breyer was horrified and she was like, next round, next round. She was enjoying <laughs> the heck out of it. 
And perhaps that is why they came out on different sides of the case where Justice Breyer uh, thought it was perfectly okay for California to, to ban the sale of violent video games to minors and Justice Kagan thought it was a First Amendment violation. That's what the majority of the court said as well. Um, and then, you know, I, I also talked to Justice Breyer a little bit about the Google Oracle case from a couple mm -hmm. years ago. That was a copyright case. And, uh, and that one, uh, the technology was was even harder to understand and probably even more central to the case because the question was whether uh, Google, in creating its Android operating system, engaged in fair use of uh, Oracle's copyrighted Java programming language. And, uh, you know, both sides were using all these analogies about like file cabinets and Harry Potter and stuff like that. And, and, and Google's analogy of the file cabinet made its way into Breyer's majority opinion uh, for, for the court. And basically what he told me is, I just spent a lot of time trying to learn this. I was looking online, I'm seeing tutorials, my clerks were, were learning about it. They, you know, at least he, you know, he thinks of himself as a generalist who is, you know, not going to be an expert on a lot of things that come before the court. But, um, you know, he he learns enough to to be able to describe the issues in in, in a coherent way. So uh, that's what I was doing last week and, and the week before was working on that story. So, uh, Craig, I can hear our producer David in my ear now saying you never, ever tied up the loose end about Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, do you know? The degree of separation, how he fits in here? No, I, I laughed politely when you said that <laughs> without really understanding what you were talking about. Okay, so my understanding is that uh, that original New York State case that sort of, you know, set off Section 230 was actually brought by the firm in The Wolf of Wall Street. Gentlemen, welcome to Stratton Oakmont. And so... So I wonder, we've, we've seen some celebrities in the courtroom. I wonder if Leo will be joining us. Well, I know you're going to be there, so you can keep an eye out. <laughs> All right. Well, with the holiday on Monday, these are the only two cases that the justices are going to be hearing next week. We could, however, get opinions. Maybe. We'll see. So be sure to keep up with the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from corporate filings to diversity within the profession, and even the latest on the burgeoning cannabis industry. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Tax's Talking Tax, wherever you get your podcasts.